Chapter four, part three of Principia Ethica. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Principia Ethica by G. E. Moore. Eighty. These facts may seem to give countenance to the general assertion that to think a thing good is to prefer it or approve it in the sense in which preference and approval denote certain kinds of will or feeling. It seems to be always true that when we thus prefer or approve, there is included in that fact the fact that we think good. And it is certainly true, in an immense majority of instances, that when we think good, we also prefer or approve. It is natural enough, then, to say that to think good is to prefer. And what more natural than to add, when I say a thing is good, I mean that I prefer it. And yet this natural addition involves a gross confusion. Even if it be true that to think good is the same thing as to prefer, which, as we have seen, is never true in the sense that they are absolutely identical, and not always true in the sense that they occur together. Yet it is not true that what you think, when you think a thing good, is that you prefer it. Even if your thinking the thing good is the same thing as your preference of it, yet the goodness of the thing, that of which you think, is, for that very reason, obviously not the same thing as your preference of it. Whether you have a certain thought or not is one question, and whether what you think is true is quite a different one, upon which the answer to the first has not the least bearing. The fact that you prefer a thing does not tend to show that the thing is good, even if it does show that you think it so. It seems to be owing to this confusion that the question, what is good, is thought to be identical with the question, what is preferred. It is said with sufficient truth that you would never know a thing was good unless you preferred it, just as you would never know a thing existed unless you perceived it. But it is added, and this is false, that you would never know a thing was good unless you knew that you preferred it, or that it existed unless you knew that you perceived it. And it is finally added, and this is utterly false, that you cannot distinguish the fact that a thing is good from the fact that you prefer it, or the fact that it exists from the fact that you perceive it. It is often pointed out that I cannot at any given moment distinguish what is true from what I think so, and this is true. But though I cannot distinguish what is true from what I think, I always can distinguish what I mean by saying that it is true from what I mean by saying that I think so. For I understand the meaning of the supposition that what I think true may nevertheless be false. When, therefore, I assert that it is true, I mean to assert something different from the fact that I think so. What I think, namely, that something is true, is always quite distinct from the fact that I think it. The assertion that it is true does not even include the assertion that I think it so. Although, of course, whenever I do think a thing true, it is, as a matter of fact, also true that I do think it. This tautologous proposition that for a thing to be thought true, it is necessary that it should be thought, is, however, commonly identified with the proposition that for a thing to be true, it is necessary that it should be thought. A very little reflection should suffice to convince anyone that this identification is erroneous. And a very little more will show that, if so, 
we must mean by true something which includes no reference to thinking or to any other physical fact it may be difficult to discover precisely what we mean to hold the object in question before us so as to compare it with other objects but that we do mean something distinct and unique can no longer be matter of doubt that to be true means to be thought in a certain way is therefore certainly false yet this assertion plays the most essential part in kant's copernican revolution of philosophy and renders worthless the whole mass of modern literature to which the revolution has given rise and which is called epistemology kant held that what was unified in a certain manner by the synthetic activity of thought was ipso facto true that this was the very meaning of the word whereas it is plain that the only connection which can possibly hold between being true and being thought in a certain way is that the latter should be a criterion or test of the former in order however to establish that it is so it would be necessary to establish by the methods of induction that what was true was always thought in a certain way modern epistemology dispenses with this long and difficult investigation at the cost of the self-contradictory assumption that truth and the criterion of truth are one and the same thing eighty one it is then a very natural though an utterly false supposition that for a thing to be true is the same thing as for it to be perceived or thought of in a certain way and since for the reasons given above the fact of preference seems roughly to stand in the same relation to thinking things good in which the fact of perception stands to thinking that they are true or exist it is very natural that for a thing to be good should be supposed identical with its being preferred in a certain way but once this coordination of volition and cognition has been accepted it is again very natural that every fact which seems to support the conclusion that being true is identical with being cognized should confirm the corresponding conclusion that being good is identical with being willed it will therefore be in place to point out another confusion which seems to have had great influence in causing acceptance of the view that to be true is the same thing as to be cognized this confusion is due to a failure to observe that when we say we have a sensation or perception or that we know a thing we mean to assert not only that our mind is cognitive but also that that which it cognizes is true it is not observed that the usage of these words is such that if a thing be untrue that fact alone is sufficient to justify us in saying that the person who says he perceives it or knows it does not perceive or know it without our either inquiring whether or assuming that his state of mind differs in any respect from what it would have been had he perceived or known it is not observed that the usage of these words is such that if a thing be untrue the fact alone is sufficient to justify us in saying that the person who says he perceives it or knows it does not perceive or know it without our either inquiring whether or assuming that his state of mind differs in any respect from what it would have been had he perceived or known 
by this denial we do not accuse him of an error in introspection even if there were such an error we do not deny that he was aware of a certain object nor even that his state of mind was exactly such as he took it to be we merely deny that the object of which he was aware had a certain property it is however commonly supposed that when we assert a thing to be perceived or known we are asserting one fact only and since of the two facts which we really assert the existence of a physical state is by far the easier to distinguish it is supposed that this is the only one which we do assert thus perception and sensation have come to be regarded as if they denoted certain states of mind and nothing more a mistake which was easier to make since the commonest state of mind to which we give a name which does not imply that its object is true namely imagination may with some plausibility be supposed to differ from sensation and perception not only in the property possessed by its object but also in its character as a state of mind it has thus come to be supposed that the only difference between perception and imagination by which they can be defined must be a merely psychical difference and if this were the case it would follow at once that to be true was identical with being cognized in a certain way since the assertion that a thing is perceived does certainly include the assertion that it is true and if nevertheless that it is perceived means only that the mind has a certain attitude towards it then its truth must be identical with the fact that it is regarded in this way we may then attribute the view that to be true means to be cognized in a certain way partly to the failure to perceive that certain words which are commonly supposed to stand for nothing more than a certain kind of cognitive state do in fact also include a reference to the truth of the object of such states eighty two i will now sum up account of the apparent connections between will and ethical propositions which seems to support the vague conviction that this is good is somehow identical with this is willed in a certain way one it may be maintained with sufficient show of truth that it is only because certain things were originally willed that we ever came to have ethical convictions at all and it has been too commonly assumed that to show what was the cause of a thing is the same thing as to show the thing itself is it is however hardly necessary to point out that this is not the case it may be further maintained with some plausibility that to think a thing good and to will it in a certain way are now as a matter of fact identical we must however distinguish certain possible meanings of this assertion it may be admitted that when we think a thing good we generally have a special attitude of will or feeling towards it and that perhaps when we will it in a certain way we do always think it good but the very fact that we can thus distinguish the question whether though the one is always accompanied by the other yet this other may not always be accompanied by the first shows that the two things are not in the strict sense identical the fact is that whatever we mean by will or by any form of the will the fact we mean by it certainly always includes something else beside the thinking a thing good and hence that when willing and thinking good are asserted to be identical the most that can be meant is that this other element in will 
always both accompanies and is accompanied by the thinking good. And this, as has been said, is a very doubtful truth. Even, however, if it were strictly true, the fact that the two things can be distinguished is fatal to the assumed coordination between will and cognition, in one of the senses in which that assumption is commonly made. For it is only in respect of that other element in will that volition differs from cognition, whereas it is only in respect of the fact that volition, or some form of volition, includes a cognition of goodness that will can have the same relation to ethical which cognition has to metaphysical propositions. Accordingly, the fact of volition as a whole, that is, if we include in it the element which makes it volition and distinguish it from cognition, has not the same relation to ethical propositions which cognition has to those which are metaphysical. Volition and cognition are not coordinate ways of experiencing, since it is only in so far as volition denotes a complex fact which includes in it the one identical simple fact which is meant by cognition that volition is a way of experiencing at all. But, 3. If we allow the terms volition or will to stand for thinking good, although they certainly do not commonly stand for this, there still remains the question, what connection would this fact establish between volition and ethics? Could the inquiry into what was willed be identical with the ethical inquiry into what was good? It is plain enough that they could not be identical, though it is also plain why they should be thought so. The question, what is good, is confused with the question, what is thought good? and the question, what is true, with the question, what is thought true, for two main reasons. 1. One of these is the general difficulty that is found in distinguishing what is cognized from the cognition of it. It is observed that I certainly cannot cognize anything that is true without cognizing it. Since, therefore, whenever I know a thing that is true, the thing is certainly cognized, it is assumed that for a thing to be true at all, is the same thing as for it to be cognized. And two, it is not observed that certain words, which are supposed to denote only peculiar species of cognition, do as a matter of fact also denote that the object cognized is true. Thus, if perception be taken to denote only a certain kind of mental fact, then, since the object of it is always true, it becomes easy to suppose that to be true means only to be object to a mental state of that kind. And similarly, it is easy to suppose that to be truly good differs from being falsely thought so, solely in respect of the fact that to be the former is to be the object of a volition differing from that of which an apparent good is the object, in the same way in which a perception on this supposition differs from an illusion. 83. Being good, then, is not identical with being willed or felt in any kind of way, any more than being true is identical with being thought in in any kind of way. But let us suppose this to be admitted. Is it still possible that an inquiry into the nature of will or feeling should be a necessary step to the proof of ethical conclusions? If being good and being willed are not identical, then the most that can be maintained with regard to the connection of goodness with will 
is that what is good is always also willed in a certain way, and that what is willed in a certain way is always also good. And it may be said that this is all that is meant by those metaphysical writers who profess to base ethics upon the metaphysics of will. What would follow from this supposition? It is plain that if what is willed in a certain way were always also good, then the fact that a thing was so willed would be a criterion of its goodness. But in order to establish that will is a criterion of goodness, we must be able to show first and separately that in a great number of the instances in which we find a certain kind of will, we also find that the objects of that will are good. We might then, perhaps, be entitled to infer that in a few instances, where it was not obvious whether a thing was good or not, but was obvious that it was willed in the way required, the thing was really good, since it had the property which in all other instances we had found to be accompanied by goodness. A reference to will might thus, just conceivably, become of use towards the end of our ethical investigations when we had already been able to show independently of a vast number of different objects that they were really good and in what degree they were so and against even this conceivable utility it may be urged one that it is impossible to see why it should not be as easy and it would certainly be the more secure way to prove that the thing in question was good by the same methods which we had used in proving that other things were good, as by reference to our criterion, and, two, that if we set ourselves seriously to find out what things are good, we shall see reason to think, as will appear in chapter 6, that they have no other property but common and peculiar to them beside their goodness, that, in fact, there is no criterion of goodness. 84. But to consider whether any form of will is or is not a criterion of goodness is quite unnecessary for our purpose here, since none of those writers who profess to base their ethics on an investigation of will have ever recognized the need of proving directly and independently that all the things which are willed in a certain way are good they make no attempt to show that will is a criterion of goodness, and no stronger evidence could be given that they do not recognize that this, at most, is all it can be. As has been just pointed out, if we are to maintain that whatever is willed in a certain way is also good, we must in the first place be able to show that certain things have one property goodness, and that the same things also have the other property that they are willed in a certain way. And secondly, we must be able to show this in a very large number of instances, if we are to be entitled to claim any assent for the proposition that these two properties always accompany one another. Even when this was shown, it would still be doubtful whether the inference from generally to always would be valid, and almost certain that this doubtful principle would be useless. But the very question which it is the business of ethics to answer is this question what things are good, and so long as hedonism retains its present popularity, it must be admitted that it is a question upon which there is scarcely any agreement and which therefore requires the most careful examination. 
The greatest and most difficult part of the business of ethics would therefore require to have been already accomplished before we could be entitled to claim that anything was a criterion of goodness. If, on the other hand, to be willed in a certain way was identical with being good, then indeed we should be entitled to start our ethical investigations by inquiring what was willed in the way required. That this is the way in which metaphysical writers start their investigations seem to show conclusively that they are influenced by the idea that goodness is identical with being willed. They do not recognize that the question, what is good, is a different one from the question, what is willed in a certain way. Thus we find Green explicitly stating that the common characteristic of the good is that it satisfies some desire. If we are to take this statement strictly, it obviously asserts that good things have no characteristic in common except that they satisfy some desire, not even, therefore, that they are good. And this can only be the case if being good is identical with satisfying desire. If good is merely another name for desire satisfying, there could be no plainer instance of the naturalistic fallacy. And we cannot take the statement as a mere verbal slip, which does not affect the validity of Green's argument. For he nowhere either gives or pretends to give any reason for believing anything to be good in any sense, except that it is what would satisfy a particular kind of desire the kind of desire which he tries to show to be that of a moral agent. An unhappy alternative is before us. Such reasoning would give valid reasons for his conclusions, if, and only if, being good and being desired in a particular way were identical, and in this case, as we have seen in chapter 1, his conclusions would not be ethical. On the other hand, if the two are not identical, his conclusions may be ethical and may even be right but he has not given us a single reason for believing them. The thing which a scientific ethics is required to show, namely that certain things are really good, he has assumed to begin with, in assuming that things which are willed in a certain way are always good. We may, therefore, have as much respect for Green's conclusions as for those of any other man who details to us his ethical convictions, but that any of his arguments are such as to give us any reason for holding that Green's convictions are more likely to be true than those of any other man must be clearly denied. The prolegomena to ethics is quite as far as Mr. Spencer's data of ethics from making the smallest contribution to the solution of ethical problems. 85. The main object of this chapter has been to show that metaphysics, understood as the investigation of a supposed supersensible reality, can have no logical bearing whatever upon the answer to the fundamental ethical question, what is good in itself? That this is so follows at once from the conclusion of chapter 1 that good denotes an ultimate unanalyzable predicate. But this truth has been so systematically ignored that it seemed worthwhile to discuss and distinguish in detail the principal relations which do hold or have been supposed to hold between metaphysics and ethics. With this view I pointed out, one, that metaphysics may have a bearing on practical ethics, on the question what ought we to do, so far as it may be able to tell us what the future effects of our action will be, 
what it can not tell us is whether those effects are good or bad in themselves one particular type of metaphysical doctrine which is very frequently held undoubtedly has such a bearing on practical ethics for if it is true that the sole reality is an eternal immutable absolute then it follows that no action of ours can have any real effect and hence that no practical proposition can be true the same conclusion follows from the ethical proposition commonly combined with this metaphysical one namely that this eternal reality is also the sole good two the metaphysical writers as were they failed to notice the contradiction between any practical proposition and the assertion that an eternal reality is the sole good seem frequently to confuse the proposition that one particular existing thing is good with the proposition that the existence of that kind of thing would be good wherever it might occur to the proof of the former proposition metaphysics might be relevant by showing that the thing existed to the proof of the latter it is wholly irrelevant it can only serve the psychological function of suggesting things which may be valuable a function which would be still better performed by pure fiction but the most important source of the supposition that metaphysics is relevant to ethics seems to be the assumption that good must denote some real property of things an assumption which is mainly due to two erroneous doctrines the first logical the second epistemological hence three i discussed the logical doctrine that all properties assert a relation between existence and pointed out that the assimilation of ethical propositions either to natural laws or to commands are instances of this logical fallacy and finally four i discussed the epistemological doctrine that to be good is equivalent to being willed or felt in some particular way a doctrine which derives support from the analogous error which kant regarded as the cardinal point of his system and which has received immensely wide acceptance the erroneous view that to be true or real is equivalent to being thought in a particular way in this discussion the main points to which i desire to direct attention are these a that volition and feeling are not analogous to cognition in the manner assumed since in so far as these words denote an attitude of the mind towards an object they are themselves merely instances of cognition they differ only in respect of the kind of object of which they take cognizance and in respect of the other mental accompaniments of such cognitions b that universally the object of a cognition must be distinguished from the cognition of which it is the object and hence that in no case can the question of whether the object is true be identical with the question how it is cognized or whether it is cognized at all it follows that even if the proposition this is good were always the object of certain kinds of will or feeling the truth of that proposition could in no case be established by proving that it was their object far less can that proposition itself be identical with the proposition that its subject is the object of volition or feeling end of chapter four